So we've been looking at these parables. And let's be honest, it's been a lot of them. We've gone through quite a few parables in the last couple months. And today we're going to complete this series and we're going to look at probably the most well-known parable in God's Word. And I, I'm a little sad. I've enjoyed doing these parables of Jesus and I, I've enjoyed going through them. And we're going to take some of this kingdom mindset information we've learned from these parables and we're going to put those into action in our lives as we begin next week looking at the book of James for a short time. And, and we'll find that while the book of James, it too captures the kingdom of God for us, particularly for us as the church, it's also a very practical book and, and it's very useful for us to apply to our lives. So we'll start that next week. But this week we're going to finish up with what is no doubt the most well-known parable and perhaps one of the easiest to misunderstand or at least to minimize and try to make completely practical and miss the kingdom mindset aspect. But we can't argue it's not one of the most well-known because even those far from Christianity, they understand it. We have phrases from this that we use commonly in our culture today. So-and-so is just such a good Samaritan. I'm sure you've probably said that or someone maybe has said that about you when you've done something nice for them. And they usually will say something like, I can't believe that you were such a good Samaritan that you did blank for me. So we're going to look at that this week, this idea of being a good Samaritan, because it's a huge compliment in our world. And it usually reminds us that someone has gone so far out of their way to be kind to us, to do something they did not need to do. And we save this parable for last because it is commonly, honestly, one of the ones that whether you're a Christian or not, you've heard the core of the story, but you maybe have struggled to understand the spiritual implication of the story. I think most people believe the point of this story is that we must help others in their time of need. And that's probably the common understanding of what this parable is about. And certainly that is a core aspect. It is an important part and it's something we don't want to take out of this parable. But that's actually a byproduct of the kingdom mindset, of the spiritual aspect of the story. And so while that practical aspect is true, we want to go deeper and understand the spiritual aspect. And we have to do that in context. And we must recognize that what Jesus said and how it's perceived and received by those in the crowd he spoke to that day, and how it's perceived and received by us. It's indeed a story about loving and caring and serving. We're talking about serving a lot at our church this year. And even it's a story about sacrificing for others, particularly maybe a stranger, somebody you don't know. But all of that, and what we commonly understand from that story, is predicated or built up on a much deeper in a far more important foundation. And it's not a foundation that we can afford to miss. And getting this foundation will allow us to see this parable with spiritual eyes and to understand the rest of it so we can apply it to our lives. So let's open up today to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 29 and read through verse 37. So Luke 10, 29 through 37 today. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up that question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. 
They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, saw him passing by and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever you spent. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy, they said to him. He said, then Jesus said, then Jesus told him, rather, go and do the same. This is God's word. And it's powerful for us to understand this. And here, Jesus, he's going to handle a very powerful and important social and practical issue in his time, but also for our time. And at the heart of this is a deeper, a spiritual issue, to be certain. And it's timely for us to think about this as our final parable of this series, especially during COVID-19 when there's riots and unrest and concerns about the equality and the goodness even of what we call the American experiment and all the principles and values that make our nation particularly what it is. And not just for America, but the state of humankind. And honestly, even beyond that, whether the concept, the reality of human kindness is still relevant in our world today. How we treat each other is a part of this parable. But what is deeper, the foundation, the spiritual aspects that make that happen? That's what Jesus is driving at. And so the question is asked here in verse 29. The question is asked and it says, uh, well, guys, it doesn't seem this remote is working for me. Is there another one somewhere maybe? Okay, so verse 29, we see here, but one to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we see back there in verse 25 what happens, and that leads to verse 29. So in verse 29, this lawyer has come to Jesus, and he says, who's my neighbor? But to understand that, we have to go back to verse 25, and this guy, an expert in the law, a teacher in the law. Thank you. He stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so, to understand this, we have to go back into context, into verse 25. You see, Jesus is talking, and they're not sure what to do with him. They're not at all sure what to do with him. And so, being that the Pharisees, as we've seen in these parables, don't understand, they do what even happens in our world today. When there's frustration, or you want to get your point across, or you feel somebody's saying something you don't like, what can you do? They send in the lawyer. They do. They send in the lawyer. See, Jesus' world is not altogether different from our world today. They send in the legal team. So they find their expert on every jot and every tittle of the law. They send in. He's not just a lawyer, because you have to remember, their world is both religious and social, and they have that kind of combined. So a teacher of the law could also be a lawyer because all of their culture 
In our, in our world, maybe you'll be a constitutional law expert, but their world, since it came from a God world, a theocracy into what they knew, a lawyer would have somewhat social status, but also religious status. So they send in this lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament. The legal team comes in, an expert in the Torah, and he asks Jesus these questions. And I've preached on this before at one point, but the Old Testament law with the Jews, their religious leaders, what their society saw as most important, and they wanted to make sure the good Old Testament law-abiding Jew wanted to make sure that they were obedient to the law, and they were very serious, so serious that they would forgo comfort. All these different rules, hundreds and hundreds of them that the Pharisees came up with, what you shouldn't do, what you should do, they would forgo any comfort, any, any uh, just happiness, anything of that sort. They would do anything to make sure that they were right before the law. They would sacrifice to do that. Because for them, what they saw as eternally important to be and right with God and to, to dwell with him after this life was done, that was far more important to them than anything else. And this was at the center of their hearts and of their lives. And this lawyer that comes to Jesus that day, he was talking, even arguing with Jesus about this and about what any good Jew desired, which was to be right before God and being obedient to him following all the right rules so they would inherit eternal life. That's what mattered to them. And for them, they would recite a prayer, and we've talked about this before, a prayer, and you can find this in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We call this the Shema, the prayer that they would pray twice a day, usually in the morning and then in the evening. They would pray this prayer, and it came down to this idea, of, and we've talked about this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then strength. And this is in the, the New Testament version, has all those in it, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should love God with everything you've got. And that's what they were trying to do by obeying all these rules. And that was the first and greatest commandment. And just before this passage, Jesus talks to someone. He says, hey, what are the two greatest commandments? And this lawyer, the same one talking here, says, well, that's easy. Everyone knows this. We pray it twice a day. You love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, well, what's the second one? Well, you, you love your neighbor. What? as yourself, right? We, you, you learn this even in our culture. You don't even have to be a Christian to understand this idea of the golden rule, right? We understand this. And so that's the context that leads into this account we've read today. You love your neighbor as yourself. And so this man comes to Jesus and he says, but hold on a minute. Who is my neighbor? Who are you saying is my neighbor? I want to love God, and I want that love to be a constant state of being in my life. I want to be obedient to God, this, this man is saying to Jesus, because loving God and obeying him and serving him and doing my best, that's what I've got to do. I've got to get the sin out of my life and do my very best and repent and work really hard so I can go to heaven someday. And a part of that in that culture was certainly showing hospitality. They did this through almsgiving at the temple. They did this in how they cared for one another. And their own countrymen were very important to not show hospitality, to not show compassion. All these things were entirely expected. But what about those who were not their countrymen? What about others? You see, the obedient Jew sought to do everything right before God. And for us as obedient Christians, don't we sometimes get caught in that same thing in our lives today? We want to honor God and love him with every fiber of our being, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's really, really difficult for us to do so. 
We sin and we make mistakes. Your pastor already started his day off stellarly doing that because I'm a human being too, just like you. How many of you have at least three things in the last 48 hours that make you cringe that you've said or done? If you only have three, you're probably far ahead of me. So good job with that. But they failed to understand. They failed to understand the fundamental aspect of what Jesus had come to teach them and what he wants to teach us. And this is part of how sin, this is that spiritual part we can't miss, how sin affects us. We cannot love God as he commands us to love him or to love others as we should, as God expects us to. We can't love God. We can't love others as we should. We just can't do it. It's not that we don't want to do it. It's not that we don't mean to do it. But we do and we say and we don't do and we fail to say the things that we shouldn't, the things that we should. There's a great ancient prayer of the faith that talks about this. God help me to do the things I ought to do and to say things I ought to say and to, to not do the things I, I shouldn't do and not say the things I shouldn't say. Or as the serenity prayer, God help me to understand why I should change what I can't and the wisdom to what? Know the difference. Understanding our own sinful self is the key to understanding our relationship with God and our relationship with others. A lot of what's happening in our world this day and a lot of the solutions people are suggesting, they won't work, not because their heart isn't at the right place, even if we don't agree with their solution, but they fail to understand that we are all born sinful. And sinful we remain. We are sanctified. We start on that path, but we still say and do dumb things, hurtful things, painful things to us, to others. That's what sin does. And they wanted to love God and they wanted to be without sin. And yet they had come up with this very rigid system to do it. So instead of just saying, you know what, I understand who I am, God. I, I understand who you are. Or saying, Jesus, you're a teacher, even if he didn't think he was God, which he did. And he said, you're a teacher, and I, I want to do what God wants me to do, so help me, to, help me to think this through. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, he says, who exactly is my neighbor, and how must I love them? In light of who we are in, in terms of God, in terms of others, this is a great question for us to ask ourselves today. Who is my neighbor and how must I love them? If I, as a Christian today, like those in Jesus' day who did not know who the Christ was yet, and though he was among them and teaching and healing, and they still didn't get it. But we, we understand who he is, and yet for us, do we understand that we must fall on his mercy and we must answer this question with humility and repentance as we've talked about through all these parables? Who is my neighbor and how must I love them? But in that verse 29 passage, we, in the passage here, we see the reality of the spiritual nature of us. That sinful nature that we're born sinful and we stay sinful. The first phrase in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself. That's not just a problem in one moment in our lives. It's a problem for us until we go to be with Christ in eternity. How many times have you said or done something stupid to justify yourself? I've done it already today. Why? Because I'm a dumb, sinful human being and there's no excuse for it. 
but there is mercy and grace for it. And how does that affect my relationship with God and with each other? Who is my neighbor? And how must I love them, interact with them, care for them? There's a heart shift that happens when you receive that amazing grace, when those seeds that we talked about dig into the soil of your heart. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You still say and do dumb things, but there's a humility, there's a repentance, there's an understanding that usually immediately grips you when you don't love God and love others. As this lawyer is talking to Jesus about, it happens. We must not miss that, friends. It's rampant in our world today, not because... America is inherently the most evil place on earth, though there are people right now that are saying that, and not because America is the most wonderful, perfect place on earth, because you got people that are saying that as well, but because wherever you are and whatever society you build, it's still made up of the same building block, which is sinful human beings. It occurs in Jesus' time, just as it does here in our world in America today. It doesn't mean the values and principles America aspires to are bad. In fact, they're mainly Christian, Judeo-Christian, and great values. But as sinful people, we mess it up. And we're seeing fairly angry backlashes against that, but they're rooted in one problem, a failure to understand that we are sinful human beings in need of a Savior, in need of God's grace. And that's why I keep pushing this idea to you as the preacher that we have to be sharing the gospel because it's the antidote for what happens in all of us, in every society, in every time and place. And Jesus' day, it occurs just like today. That's what we're seeing. And so Jesus tells this parable to engage the sinful nature, the self-righteous and pompous anger, the depraved nature of people like us. We don't need to prove that to a world that doesn't think it exists because life will prove that that's who we are time and time again. But in spiritual blindness, we'll watch people say, no, I think people are inherently good. I can't go through Walmart without thinking people are inherently good. Maybe you can. I was in Walmart again, somebody going down the wrong aisle. Oh, they're not reading the stickers on the floor like that's the end of the world. But I'm immediately, I immediately say, well, I'm going the right way down the aisle. They should turn around and let me through. Oh, shush, you've all done it already at the store. <laughs> Haven't you done it? You probably have done it. You probably have done that. You've gone in this store and you thought, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. I'm going the right way down the aisle. Does it matter? I mean, I understand the health aspects of that. That's fine. I understand that we're trying to, to you know, make sure this virus is squashed. And that's good and that's fine. But that's not what it's about in our head. It's about I'm right and they're wrong. That's the nature of sin. So Jesus tells this parable to affect change spiritually, not just practically and socially and culturally and politically, and not that those things don't matter, but the core issue is the spiritual one up above all of those things. And it allows us to deal with all the real pain in our lives, injustice, racism, but also some of the evils we deal with every day. Waiting in line at the BMV or those people that call you at 7 a.m. to sell you an auto warranty for a car that does not exist anymore in your driveway. Can we find out where they are? If you want to go occupy something, I suggest finding out where the, whatever building is where those robocalls come from. Let's take that building, right? That's the one I recommend. 
I think that might be the one thing we can all agree on. Anyhow, all jokes aside, we all have a neighbor. Maybe one that's difficult, maybe one that's not. And we all have a neighbor, one who's maybe a little kinder, and you think, I want to be like that neighbor. But all of that is on the sliding scale of our sinfulness. And all jokes aside, this guy hearing this parable, he said, Jesus, I hear you 100%. Five by five, I've got it. In fact, I think I've got together. So tell me, who's my neighbor? Because I'm, I'm actually the good neighbor. I'm the one that has it together. See, this guy... He thinks he's right before God. This lawyer thinks he's got it all together. So he says, Jesus, I've already nailed all that. I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm loving my neighbor as myself. But you seem to be talking about something else. So who are you telling me is my neighbor? So Jesus tells everyone, including this lawyer, this parable. And while many of the parables you've heard me say week after week, ah, you know what, this one's fairly straightforward. It's easy to understand. This one is not fairly straightforward, and that's why I think sometimes we get the practical side of it, but not that deeper spiritual meaning, and that's why we just talk through some of this. Think about how many times you and I use our own pride and our own sin to justify things to ourselves, to prop ourselves up, and you say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. That's what I do at Walmart when that person comes down the aisle. That's when, when someone criticizes me and I say something stupid because I'm mad. Maybe I'm convicted. Or maybe I just don't know what to say. I do that in life. I do that in, to random strangers, to my family, to my kids, my wife, my poor wife. I don't know how she puts up with me. I do it here at church. I do it all the time. Maybe you do too. Because that sin and that self-righteousness, we talked about that sin always comes from accusation. And when that happens, we react naturally that way. We do it all the time. And Jesus is going to confront that right now. You know what? I'm pretty much a good person. I'm better than accusation. Better than that person. That's what Jesus is going to reveal from the kingdom of God, the spiritual nature. And he's going to go right after this. He's trying to make disciples, ardent followers of not what God said, not the jot and the tittle, but beyond that, the depth, the rootedness, the spirit of the law. He says, you understand all about the law, but you don't understand the law. He tells the Pharisees this time and time again. You don't understand what it's pointing to. So Jesus takes this up starting in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Wow, that's a heck of a setup. And so they beat him up and left him half dead. So Jericho is about 17 or 18 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a very rocky, windy, dangerous, mountainy pass. Have you ever been like in California or somewhere and seen those roads or Colorado where you look over the side and you're about to die? I was talking to Vince about this when he and Britta were on a trip, and he can tell the story someday, where they thought, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Because sometimes if you're in Colorado and California, snow blows in, and you're like, okay, I'm up on top of a mountain here on my 12-pound convertible, and now there's snow, and I've got to get down this hill. Right? It doesn't matter if you have a truck or not. But here, this mountainy, rocky pass that they were going down from Jerusalem, which is way up high. They built it there for both defensive and spiritual reasons. 
because they wanted to give God glory. City on a hill shining down. It certainly was on a hill. 4,000 feet higher than Jericho is Jerusalem. A 4,000 foot drop. So when it says he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody goes, you better believe you were. Way down. Rocky, dangerous pass. And for centuries, that crooked and steep path, that large pass they go through is called the Pass of Adamum, is what it's called. And what that is translated as is the bloody pass. That pass is mentioned all the way back in uh, Joshua 18, 17, mentions this. So the Pass of Adamum, they would go down this, and it's called the bloody pass. Does that sound like a place you want to travel? There's no Howard Johnsons in the bloody pass. If you're too young for, too young for that, there's no sheets or Wawa or whatever they had where you grow up in the bloody pass, okay? No one's there and go, oh, look, a Sonic. Let's pull in. It's happy hour. We can get a freezy float for $3. No. It was a dangerous, terrible place. And anyone who went down there knew that the people from the wrong side of the tracks, wherever you were from, were going to rob you and kill you and strip you naked, probably somewhere around the bloody pass, the pass of Adam. That was not where you wanted to get stuck. And so this man, would every, and so everyone here is thinking, yep, makes sense. Guy got caught. He was on the wrong side of the tracks. He got caught out after dark where his parents told him not to be. And he got what people often get there. He got whooped on. So it's really, really difficult. So what happens here is that he's actively dying. If he didn't get medical attention, he probably would have died from exposure or something else because he was probably stripped naked and left, as it says here, beaten half to death. And all alone, he wouldn't make it. The wildlife, or something at least, would get him if he was there for too long. And maybe he laid there through part of the night. We don't even know. But what we find out that happens is that, indeed, finally someone comes down, probably when it's safer to travel. Maybe the sun's come up. Someone comes through. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. Think about that. So that's what happened. He went by and he passed on the other side. Wow. Now actually in the original language, the Levite, we translate in both as passed by the other side. It kind of says the Levite did an about face. You ever walk in a room and see something you didn't want to get in on and just immediately go the other way? That's what the Levite did. Now you have to understand a little bit about this in their culture. These were the sought-after, law-abiding, remember what they thought made them righteous, law-abiding people. Man, you know, if you want to obey all the rules, the person you would look up to the most is the priest. Not this guy, not your pastor. I'm talking, pretend it's not me. Pretend it's somebody that you should look up to. All right? Like uh, Billy Graham. I don't know. Okay? The most wonderful pastor, maybe you had one growing up that was a great, whatever it was, that person... The priest to them was the law-abiding, most righteous. They were the ones that ceremonially were cleansed, that kept every tiny minutia of the law so they could go in the temple and offer those sacrifices. They really, really tried to be the righteous people. So those priests, this is not, we're not talking about the Pharisees here. This is a priest, someone who tries to keep everything right, and they're just trying to obey the law. They think they've got it all together. And yet, this person goes the other side of the road. Now, people, scholars say, well, maybe the priest would have had a reason. And this is a fictional story, guys. This is a parable. 
Jesus is telling this. He, this is not, well, you know, culturally. No, the, this guy had no excuse. If I'm a pastor and I see somebody in need and I'm like, you know what? I'm not on the clock right now. Is that an excuse? Of course not. But yet, he sees this guy, doesn't want anything to do with him, and basically gets as far away from him as he can and goes to the other side of the road. Looks straight ahead, pretends he didn't see it, and keeps on walking. Now, the priest, more than anyone, knew the Old Testament laws. He would know verses like Leviticus 19.34. Leviticus 19.34 says this, You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. Oh, how about that? For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, God is a God of rescue, spiritually, practically, in every way. And he means us to rescue people when they're in distress and brokenness. And he says here, hey, you were once not people here, and so someone else comes in here if they're not of you and they need help. You are to love them as if they were your what? Neighbor. The priest would know this. It was part of the law. But he didn't care. Love him as yourself. Who is my neighbor, Jesus, the lawyer says. Jesus here tells a story and says, well, the priest would know this was their neighbor. But he passes by. And the same for the Levite, who also had to be a temple worker. They were actually kind of like the police in the temple, the temple security. And they would have made sure that everyone was safe and cared for. This is someone who has made a promise to God to make sure that everything is right and proper. And yet the Levite pretends he didn't see it, turns around and heads the other way as fast as he can. They walk away. In our world, this would be maybe the pastors and the ruling elders or the deacons we see someone in need and we pretend we didn't see him at all. Won't you be my neighbor? This is the anti-Mr. Rogers. We don't do anything. That's what the priest and the Levite do. That's what happens. They ignore the person in need. And not only did they fail to help, remember, sin is not just what we do, but what we fail to do. They not only failed to help, they failed to even acknowledge the man's existence. They basically dehumanized him. They walk right past him. And I know, like I said, commentators go wild and say, well, what about this? What about that? This is a fictional story Jesus is telling to make a point about the sinful hearts of you and me. It doesn't matter about the cultural this and that. The Levite and the priest knew better, and they failed to put aside any of their self-righteousness to care for this man. And yet, Jesus isn't done. As he's done throughout all these parables, he shifts his story even further. He shifts it to talk about how God loves all people, not just the Jewish people, which is kind of what they thought. That's why he's saying, who's my neighbor? His love for all people was revealed. And these normally revered people, these models of legalism and perfection and obedience, Jesus used them to show that the story is not about knowing the rules. That matters, and obeying the rules is important, but it's about knowing and doing the heart of God, which the rules capture, but it's more than just anything else. It's about knowing yourself and that you need God's grace too, that you're a sinner saved by it. This is no longer about who your neighbor is. That's been shot full of holes. It's about who you are, who they are, and who God is. And like we talked about last week, we talked about the parable of the lamp. We are to do what? Know God's heart and do God's will to others. We are to know God's heart and to do God's will to others. That's our job. We understand that as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be doing. 
So what's that look like? Here, Jesus shifts his story, and he clearly is saying to the crowds this day and to this lawyer, this man before him, who wants to know what it means to inherit eternity. Because remember, he started off saying, hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what about the commands? He says, well, I, I love God with all my heart. I love my neighbor. I do this. I do that. And he says, no, 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 no. Deeper than that. Who are you? Who am I in relationship to God? To know his love, to know his grace, and to know that we have to fall upon it, to know that that should change our heart, that it leads us to repentance. It's not that we don't make mistakes or say and do wrong. It's that do we recognize it and do we turn away? If you want to do an about face like the Levi, you should be running from your sin and running to God and saying, I just messed up. And I want you to help me and give me the strength and pour your spirit into me so that I can stop doing that the same way I keep doing it. And that's where Jesus brings in the plot twist to that end in verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That's the first thing that we learn about him, that he does that. It's amazing. The next day, he took out two denarii. We learned about that. That's not a small chunk of money. Gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of them. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked them. He asked them that. But let's stop back here in verse 35 and understand that Jesus is going to call them to account for what they've just heard about the Samaritans. So what happens with that? What happens? The ultimate plot twist. The Samaritan comes and is the hero. He does everything in his power to love and to serve the stranger. Everything that those other two should have done to save his life. This man loves him, loves the stranger with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He holds nothing back. He carries the man back. He stabilizes him from death. He disinfects his wounds. That's what he's doing with the olive oil and the wine. He takes him, and while he's critical, he nurses him back to health. He stops whatever he's, he's doing. He's on a long journey because Samaria and Jerusalem, we'll get into that in a minute, were far apart. And he says, hey, I'm going to take care of this guy. I'm going to do critical care. I'm going to be his emergency room. I'm going to make sure this guy doesn't die. I'm going to be the first responder. I'm going to stay with him till he's stable. And then he says to the innkeeper, you know me. I travel through these parts. Here's a big chunk of money. And if, if that's not enough... You know I'll be back when I come back through on my journey and I'm good for it. I'll pay for whatever he needs. Stop and think about that for a minute. Imagine you find somebody on Route 8 on the side of the road and we'll say they got robbed or hit by a car. On Route 8, that's entirely possible. And you pick them up and you take them to the nicest hotel around, five-star hotel. Pretend we have one of those, Okay. And you take him in there, and then you run down to the Ruth Chris Steakhouse, and you get him a steak. A really good steak. Just the way he, he'd like it. And you buy him a bunch of groceries. You put them all up. You set them all up, and you say to the innkeeper, room service, whatever he wants. If he eats lobster every day, it doesn't matter. Whatever he needs. If you check on whatever he needs. You get it for him, and you know me. In fact, here's my credit card. Mark it down. And I'll be back through later, and he may be gone, but you know I'm good for it. You see... This Samaritan doesn't even know if he's going to see this guy again. It doesn't matter. He's not doing it for anyone else to know. He's doing it because it's right. And he says, here, just whatever he needs. And, you know, it's covered. I'll make sure it's paid for. 
How radical is the love and generosity that person has right then? Think about that. How selfless is that person who cares for this man? Catch the full weight of what this means. Jesus' audience hears this and understand who the Samaritans are. These are the people that were left in the northern kingdom when God allowed the enemies of Israel and Judah to carry the rest of them off into captivity. They come back with Nehemiah and rebuild the walls and Zerubbabel and rebuild the temple and they do all this stuff to rebuild their kingdom. And they go, look at us, city on the hill. We've got it all together. And Jesus says, you don't. In fact, nobody does. It's not just you guys. Nobody has it together. Jesus is trying to teach them, you've missed understanding what sin's about. Nobody's right, and God is love, and we can get it all together, right? That's what everybody would say today. God is God, and love is love, and we can all get together. And Jesus says, well, no, it's not that either. It's not that there isn't a right and wrong. It's that you can know the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law. It's not that we get rid of one for the other. They both count. But if you're going to love somebody, you're going to love God first. And if you're going to love God first, you're going to see God. And if you're going to see God, you're going to recognize that you're a sinner who needs his grace. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So he picks a Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. In fact, they had fought each other. About 130 years before this, they had gone to war. And some of the Jews went up to Mount Gerizim where they had built their temple and actually laid waste to it. The Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had been at war. I got news for you, they're still at war in that region today. One said the other one didn't follow the law right, and the other one said the first ones just didn't treat them well enough, and they hated each other, and they fought, and they were both wrong in how they treated one another. Jesus goes straight into Samaria in a different place we see, and he visits a woman at the well, John 4, the outcast among the outcasts, but you see, the reason it's so crazy Jesus goes into Samaria is that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they had a saying, I never want the dirt from Samaria on my feet. They would go three days around Samaria to avoid because they had two parts of Israel and Samaria was in the middle. They would go three days extra around rather than let the dirt of that place touch their feet. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. Can you imagine how they felt when Jesus says, here's your heroes, they're wrong, and here's your enemy. And their enemy was right. In this parable, this story that Jesus tells, to the lawyer questioning Jesus, the most despised enemy of God being made the hero, he doesn't know what to do. And what Jesus is saying to them and to us is, religious fervor and religiosity is only as good as the spirit behind it. You can check all the boxes on the outside and get none of the heart on the inside. Knowing God's word and knowing who it says you are and who it says he is should change how you treat everyone else. He loved, this Samaritan loved this other man like a brother, even though he couldn't even talk to him. He didn't even know who he was. He was bloody and beaten and probably naked. He didn't even know him. All he knew was that this was another person made in God's image that deserved help and love and mercy. The Samaritan gets the kingdom of God more than the religious leaders that Jesus is describing. What he did was love this man like any of us would love and care for ourselves. Or perhaps maybe our families. 
in the best situations, the best care, all the needs met, comfort, no fear of bills, no fear of problems. It's what maybe as a dad I want to do for my family. Pure and complete grace, nothing expected in return. He's not even going to see this guy again. Think about it. Think about it. I can imagine Jesus' audience was silent when he said the question that I already previewed for you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, the lawyer says. He says, then Jesus gives a command. The Son of God gives a command. Go and do the same. Go and do the same. The one who showed mercy. The one who was a neighbor, the one who loved like Jesus loves, not the one who looked good, sounded good, acted good, had it all together, had the perfectly buttoned shirt. That's not the person Jesus says is righteous. The one who had the pedigree, the one that had all the acceptance, all the admiration, Jesus says that person was not right before God. But the other one, the one who did what was good, it wasn't the laws didn't matter, but the one who did what was good, who declared God's heart as right and did it, the one who cared about what others thought or expected. The one who showed mercy. There's not a lot of mercy going around right now. Friends, learn from this story. We must all understand mercy. And in Jesus' story, all the way back to verse 25, that's the one who knows God and inherits eternal life. This is an indictment on all of us. It's an indictment on our world today. We have people with no doubt ulterior motives that are in, involved in some of this anger and unrest in our country. And there are organizations that say something and yet they mean something very different than their names and we don't need to get into all that. We don't get into politics here. There is deceit and there's lies and we understand that. But the heart of those who are coming into a lot of this who want to say and do and love and care for other people and treat other people regardless of who they are, where they're from, and what they look like, and love them. Let's talk about that heart. That's the right heart, isn't it? Regardless of all the rest of it, we can all affirm that we should be loving others the way that God loves us. Amen, right? But yet, that starts with us understanding our own sinfulness. Friends, I invite you this week to get beyond the politics, beyond the unrest, because all these young adults and young people and, and those who have their hearts in the right place, they don't know the answer because they don't understand the question. They don't understand the problem. Just as Jesus' audience here in this parable, they thought that following all the rules made them right. They didn't get it, that they were still just broken sinners and that God God didn't want them to try to be perfect. They wanted, he wanted them to fall on his mercy and let him guide their lives. Seeking him, praying to him, reading his word and understanding it, not just in truth, but in spirit and in truth. We have to hold those intentions. We have to seek God and know God and love like God. And none of us have the power to do that outside of God's spirit. That's why we stick our foots in our mouths. That's why we say and do things to hurt other people. We have to understand that. We have to, even as we close today in prayer, maybe the simplest and best prayer we can pray to God today is say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. I cannot love like you command. I cannot see people the way you see them. God, I need you 
to give me the power to love people the way that you love me and to see people the way that you see me. And for us, in our own sinfulness and our own accusation, that means that we have to recognize that God probably sees us a lot better sometimes than we see ourselves. I think that's the starting point for everything that's wrong in our world. That we would understand that God loves us as that Samaritan loved that man in the selfless, sacrificial, and extravagant grace and mercy. And that's what Jesus has come not only to teach them here, but to show them on the cross of Calvary. And friends, if we could start with that understanding in our lives, how God loves us, how God sees us, is how we should see others and love others. Maybe we would be one step closer as God's people in this time that he would prepare us to be the difference in our world. That we would be able to answer the question, who is your neighbor and how do you love them? Let's pray. God, that you would indeed and all these things teach us the truth that I can't love like you, God. I can't do it. And I need your spirit in me, God, that I would understand. I can't love like you love me. And God, I, I need your spirit within me so that I am able to be the person that you've created me to be. And God, in my sin, I'm broken. But I need you now more than ever to take a hold of my life and to change who I am. God, that we would all understand our need to fall in your grace every day, that we would understand that it's not the right and wrong, it's not that the truth and the, and the rules in your word don't matter, but true love comes from repentance, and that means falling down and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I can't love people the way you love them. I can't see them the way you see me, let alone how I should see them. And so God, change me, fill me, draw me in and change my heart that I, though a sinner, would be sanctified by your grace, that I would have the power to love and to serve. God, do that in our hearts and our lives, that we would be the change our world needs this day in the midst of all that's going on, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.